Our kids have said to us since we've moved to Minnesota, we are far more active than we've ever been anywhere else we've ever lived. Moving to Minnesota opened up a lot of doors for us. Just this overall sense of community, of the values that, you know, Minnesotans have. It's a real accepting, loving community, especially with two young kids. See why CNBC ranks Minnesota number four best state to live and work. A great place to work, an even better place to live. ExploreMinnesota.com slash live. Halloween by John Kendrick Bangs Bring forth the raisins and the nuts, tonight all hollow specter struts along the moonlit way. No time is this for tear or sob, or other woes or joys to rob, but time for Pippin and for Bob and Jack-o'-lantern gay. Come forth, ye lass and trousered kid, from prisoned mischief raise the lid, and lift it good and high. Leave grave old wisdom in the lurch, set folly on a lofty perch, nor fear the awesome rod of birch when dawn illumes the sky. Tis night for revel, set apart, to reillume the darkened heart and rout the hosts of dole. Tis night when goblin, elf, and fay come dancing in their best array to prank and royster on the way and ease the troubled soul. The ghosts of all things, past parade, emerging from the mist and shade that hid them from our gaze, and full of song and ringing mirth, in one glad moment of rebirth, again they walk the ways of earth, as in the ancient days. The beacon light shines on the hill, the willow wisps the forest fill, with flashes filched from noon. And witches on their broomsticks spry, speed here and yonder in the sky, and life their strident voices high unto the hunter's moon. The air resounds with tuneful notes from myriads of straining throats, all hailing folly queen. So join the swelling choral song, forget your sorrow and your wrong, in one glad hour of joyous song, to honor Halloween. Hey everybody, CJ here wishing you and yours a pleasant Halloween for 2017. One of my favorite holidays and one of my favorite times of year. Of course, I miss when I lived in a place briefly for just a couple of years that had a true fall around this time of year. And we don't really have that here down in Florida, but we do, at least about half the time, have the beginning of the end of the long, long summer. When we're lucky, we get a little break in the heat and humidity by around Halloween time. Some years we don't. Some years we don't get it till around Thanksgiving time. But this year we got it after a long, hot, and very, very storm-filled summer. 
Right now, the last few days of October, it's actually turned pleasant. Now, compared to those of you who live much further north, it's probably not a whole lot different from a typical summer day here. But man, when you've been used to very high heat and humidity for about seven months, it is a welcome relief when it only gets up into the 70s and the humidity drops a little bit. So I'm feeling quite festive and seasonal in my way. And I'm happy to share with you some poems and stories in the spirit of the season that are scary and or Halloween related. So what's on the docket for this episode? Well, aside from the poem I already read you, which was Halloween by John Kendrick Bangs, first published in 1919, I have the following things on the docket for this episode. The Outsider by H.P. Lovecraft, which was first published in 1926. The poem Richard Corey by Edward Arlington Robinson, which was first published in 1897. The Legend of Sleepy Hollow by Washington Irving, first published in 1820. The poem The Vampire by Madison Julius Cowain, first published in 1896. And by the way, Cowain, and I've heard it pronounced different ways, Cowain, 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 is a very interesting poet I've only recently discovered, but I've really been into his work. Not all the things he writes are of a Halloween or a, a kind of scary theme, but some of them are. He's, he's a very good poet. I'm, I'm really getting into him. He was a turn-of-the-century American poet from Kentucky. And then last, but hopefully not least, a story by me, Winter's End by C.J. Kilmer, which I wrote approximately 10 years ago from when I'm recording this podcast. I wrote it approximately 2007. And it's an interesting story. It's one of relatively few stories I've ever written that's written in the second person rather than the most common third-person point of view, or the, probably the second most common first-person point of view, I chose the second-person point of view for this one, and also was, in a way, kind of putting my Ray Bradbury hat on a little bit as far as the language. But I hope you'll enjoy it. Uh, as I said, I wrote it approximately 2007. It was first published in a small fiction venue in 2011, and was then reprinted in another small venue a few years later. But prior to it being published, it actually, one of the first places I submitted it to was the horror magazine Cemetery Dance, which is one of the more respected horror fiction venues, one of the more prestigious ones in the United States. And, you know, it'll publish short stories by name brand horror writers. And I swung at the fences and submitted it there before I eventually submitted it to some more humble venues. And obviously they didn't uh, publish it, but I got a positive rejection. For those of you who've never submitted short fiction to publication venues, um, just to let you know, typically when you get a story rejected, you get kind of a form letter back that clearly is just, you know, a generic thing. Um, some places, you may submit electronically. Some places will only take paper submissions. I don't know how Cemetery Dance is these days. I've not tried to submit anything to it in, in years. But at the time, this is probably back around like 08 that I submitted it, it was paper copies only. And they sent me back a, a snail mail response. And um, there was actually a personalized handwritten note from one of the editors there. And it was a rejection, but it was a favorable rejection. So, you know, that's pretty sweet. Because I submitted things to a lot of kind of, you know, respected places over the years and typically just got a form letter back. So 
that was heartening and that kept me pimping that story around until eventually it got published in not one but two uh, more humble publications. So anyway, I hope you'll enjoy that. Real quick, before we launch into the rest of the episode, I do have a couple of Patreon thank yous, because a few people actually have signed up just in the past few days or so while I was working on the Sparring of the Amateur Boxer episode, and so I didn't thank them on there because I had already recorded the first segment of that. Um, anyway, big thanks to The Meat Trapper, and that's a great person to have around if the shit ever really hits the fan really bad, and also to Michael. So, Meat Trapper and Michael, thanks very much for signing up to support the show over at patreon.com slash profcj, and I hope the rest of you listening, if you're not already a supporter of the show, will consider doing so. And for a pledge amount of $5 per month or more, you will earn the coveted rank of Scholar Warrior which means you'll have access to special bonus episodes available nowhere else. You'll be eligible to join the DHP Scholar Warriors private Facebook group, and also you will get regular DHP episodes now. Starting with episode 147, you will get them early on your Patreon feed if you are a $5 per month or more contributor to the show. You'll get them early, and it'll have all these things like what I'm doing right now, plugging Patreon and thanking people for signing up, all those things will be cut out on the versions of the regular episodes of the show you will get if you're a Scholar Warrior. And by the way, I will have a second Halloween special. This one right here is part one. I'll be doing part two shortly. And it will also have a collection of different stories and poems. And it will also include one of my own stories at the end as well. So, on with... The rest of the episode. The Outsider by H.P. Lovecraft Unhappy is he to whom the memories of childhood bring only fear and sadness. Wretched is he who looks back upon lone hours in vast and dismal chambers with brown hangings and maddening rows of antique books, or upon awed watches in twilight groves of grotesque, gigantic, and vine-encumbered trees that silently wave twisted branches far aloft. Such a lot the gods gave to me, to me, the dazed, the disappointed, the barren, the broken. And yet I am strangely content and cling desperately to those sere memories when my mind momentarily threatens to reach beyond to the other. I know not where I was born, save that the castle was infinitely old and infinitely horrible, full of dark passages and high ceilings, where the eye could find only cobwebs and shadows. The stones in the crumbling corridors seemed always hideously damp, and there was an accursed smell everywhere, as of the piled-up corpses of dead generations. 
It was never light, so that I used sometimes to light candles and gaze steadily at them for relief. Nor was there any sun outdoors, since the terrible trees grew high above the topmost accessible tower. There was one black tower which reached above the trees into the unknown outer sky, but that was partly ruined and could not be ascended save by a well-nigh impossible climb up the sheer wall, stone by stone. I must have lived years in this place, but I cannot measure the time. Beings must have cared for my needs, yet I cannot recall any person except myself or anything alive but the noiseless rats and bats and spiders. I think that whoever nursed me must have been shockingly aged, since my first conception of a living person was that of somebody mockingly like myself, yet distorted, shriveled, and decaying like the castle. To me there was nothing grotesque in the bones and skeletons that strewed some of the stone crypts deep down among the foundations. I fantastically associated these things with everyday events, and thought them more natural than the colored pictures of living beings which I found in many of the moldy books. From such books I learned all that I knew. No teacher urged or guided me, and I do not recall hearing any human voice in all those years, not even my own. For although I had read of speech, I had never thought to try to speak aloud. My aspect was a matter equally unthought of, for there were no mirrors in the castle, and I merely regarded myself by instinct as akin to the youthful figures I saw drawn and painted in the books. I felt conscious of youth because I remembered so little. Outside, across the putrid moat and under the dark mute trees, I would often lie and dream for hours about what I read in the books, and would longingly picture myself amidst gay crowds in the sunny world beyond the endless forests. Once I tried to escape from the forest, but as I went further from the castle, the shade grew denser and the air more filled with brooding fear, so that I ran frantically back lest I lose my way in a labyrinth of nighted silence. So through endless twilights I dreamed and waited, though I knew not what I waited for. Then, in the shadowy solitude, my longing for light grew so frantic that I could rest no more and I lifted entreating hands to the single black ruined tower that reached above the forest into the unknown outer sky. And at last I resolved to scale that tower, fall though I might, since it were better to glimpse the sky and perish than to live without ever beholding day. In the dank twilight I climbed the worn and aged stone stairs till I reached the level where they ceased and thereafter clung perilously to small footholds leading upward. Ghastly and terrible was that dead, stairless cylinder of rock, black, ruined, and deserted, and sinister with startled bats whose wings made no noise. But more ghastly and terrible still was the slowness of my progress, for, climb as I might, the darkness overhead grew no thinner and a new chill as of haunted and venerable mold assailed me. 
I shivered as I wondered why I did not reach the light, and would have looked down had I dared. I fancied that night had come suddenly upon me, and vainly groped with one free hand for a window embrasure, that I might peer out and above, and try to judge the height I had once attained. All at once, after an infinity of awesome, sightless crawling up that concave and desperate precipice, I felt my head touch a solid thing, and I knew I must have gained the roof, or at least some kind of floor. In the darkness, I raised my free hand and tested the barrier, finding it stone and immovable. Then came a deadly circuit of the tower, clinging to whatever holds the slimy wall could give till finally my testing hand found the barriers yielding, and I turned upward again, pushing the slab or door with my head as I used both hands in my fearful ascent. There was no light revealed above, and as my hands went higher, I knew that my climb was for the nonce ended, since the slab was the trapdoor of an aperture, leading to a level stone surface of greater circumference than the lower tower no doubt the floor of some lofty and capacious observation chamber. I crawled through carefully and tried to prevent the heavy slab from falling back into place, but failed in the latter attempt. As I lay exhausted on the stone floor, I heard the eerie echoes of its fall, hoped when necessary to pry it up again. Believing I was now at prodigious height, far above the accursed branches of the wood, I dragged myself up from the floor and fumbled about for windows, that I might look for the first time upon the sky and the moon and stars of which I had read. But on every hand I was disappointed, since all that I found were vast shelves of marble bearing odious oblong boxes of disturbing size." More and more I reflected and wondered what hoary secrets might abide in this high apartment so many eons cut off from the castle below. Then unexpectedly my hands came upon a doorway where hung a portal of stone, rough with strange chiseling. Trying it, I found it locked. But with a supreme burst of strength, I overcame all obstacles and dragged it open inward. As I did so, there came to me the purest ecstasy I have ever known for, shining tranquilly through an ornate grating of iron, and down a short stone passageway of steps that ascended from the newly found doorway, was the radiant full moon, which I had never before seen, save in dreams and in vague visions I dared not call memories. Fancying now that I had attained the very pinnacle of the castle, I commenced to rush up the few steps beyond the door, but the sudden veiling of the moon by a cloud caused me to stumble, and I felt my way more slowly in the dark. It was still very dark when I reached the grating, which I tried carefully and found unlocked, but which I did not open for fear of falling from the amazing height to which I had climbed. Then the moon came out. Most demoniacal of all shocks is that of the abysmally unexpected and grotesquely unbelievable. Nothing I had before undergone could compare in terror with what I now saw, with the bizarre marvels that sight implied. The sight itself was as simple as it was stupefying, for it was merely this. Instead of a dizzying prospect of treetops seen from a lofty eminence, there stretched around me on the level. Through the grating, nothing less than the solid ground 
decked and diversified by marble slabs and columns, and overshadowed by an ancient stone church, whose ruined spire gleamed spectrally in the moonlight. Half unconscious, I opened the grating and staggered out upon the white gravel path that stretched away in two directions. My mind, stunned and chaotic as it was, still held the frantic craving for light, and not even the fantastic wonder which had happened could stay my course. I neither knew nor cared whether my experience was insanity, dreaming, or magic, but was determined to gaze on brilliance and gaiety at any cost. I knew not who I was or what I was, or what my surroundings might be though as I continued to stumble along I became conscious of a kind of fearsome latent memory that made my progress not wholly fortuitous. I passed under an arch out of that region of slabs and columns and wandered through the open country, sometimes following the visible road, but sometimes leaving it curiously to tread across meadows where only occasional ruins bespoke the ancient presence of a forgotten road. Once I swam across a swift river where crumbling mossy masonry told of a bridge long vanished. Over two hours must have passed before I reached what seemed to be my goal, a venerable ivied castle in a thickly wooded park, maddeningly familiar yet full of perplexing strangeness to me. I saw that the moat was filled in, and that some of the well-known towers were demolished, whilst new wings existed to confuse the beholder. But what I observed with chief interest and delight were the open windows, gorgeously ablaze with light and sending forth sound of the gayest revelry. Advancing to one of these, I looked in and saw an oddly dressed company indeed, making merry and speaking brightly to one another. I had never seemingly heard human speech before, and could guess only vaguely what was said. Some of the faces seemed to hold expressions that brought up incredibly remote recollections. Others were utterly alien. I now stepped through the low window into the brilliantly lighted room, stepping as I did so from my single bright moment of hope to my blackest convulsion of despair and realization. The nightmare was quick to come, for as I entered, there occurred immediately one of the most terrifying demonstrations I had ever conceived. Scarcely had I crossed the sill when there descended upon the whole company a sudden and unheralded fear of hideous intensity, distorting every face and evoking the most horrible screams from nearly every throat. Flight was universal, and in the clamor and panic several fell in a swoon and were dragged away by their madly fleeing companions. Many covered their eyes with their hands and plunged blindly and awkwardly in their race to escape, overturning furniture and stumbling against the walls before they managed to reach one of the many doors. The cries were shocking, and as I stood in the brilliant apartment, alone and dazed, listening to their vanishing echoes, I trembled at the thought of what might be lurking near me unseen. At a casual inspection, the room seemed deserted, but when I moved towards one of the alcoves, I thought I detected a presence there, a hint of motion beyond the golden arched doorway leading to another and somewhat similar room. As I approached the arch, I began to perceive the presence more clearly, and then, with the first and last sound I ever uttered, a ghastly ululation that revolted me almost as poignantly as its noxious cause— 
I beheld in full, frightful vividness, the inconceivable, indescribable, and unmentionable monstrosity which had by its simple appearance changed a merry company to a herd of delirious fugitives. I cannot even hint what it was like, for it was a compound of all that is unclean, uncanny, unwelcome, abnormal, and detestable. It was the ghoulish shade of decay, antiquity, and dissolution, the putrid, dripping edelon of unwholesome revelation, the awful bearing of that which the merciful earth should always hide. God knows it was not of this world, or no longer of this world, yet to my horror I saw in its eaten away and bone-revealing outlines a leering, abhorrent travesty on the human shape, and in its moldy, disintegrating apparel, an unspeakable quality that chilled me even more. I was almost paralyzed, but not too much so to make a feeble effort towards flight, a backward stumble which failed to break the spell in which the nameless, voiceless monster held me. My eyes, bewitched by the glassy orbs which stared loathsomely into them, refused to close. Though they were mercifully blurred and showed the terrible object but indistinctly after the first shock. I tried to raise my hand to shut out the sight, yet so stunned were my nerves that my arm could not fully obey my will. The attempt, however, was enough to disturb my balance, so that I had to stagger forward several steps to avoid falling. As I did so, I became suddenly and agonizingly aware of the nearness of the carrion thing, whose hideous hollow breathing I half-fancied I could hear. Nearly mad, I found myself yet able to throw out a hand to ward off the fetid apparition which pressed so close when in one cataclysmic second of cosmic nightmarishness and hellish accident, my fingers touched the rotting, outstretched paw of the monster beneath the golden arch. I did not shriek, but all the fiendish ghouls that ride the night wind shrieked for me as, in that same second, there crashed down upon my mind a single fleeting avalanche of soul-annihilating memory. I knew in that second all that it had been. I remembered beyond the frightful castle and the trees, and recognized the altered edifice in which I now stood. I recognized, most terrible of all, the unholy abomination that stood leering before me as I withdrew my sullied fingers from its own. But in the cosmos there is balm as well as bitterness, and that balm is Nepenthes. In the supreme horror of that second, I forgot what had horrified me, and the burst of black memory vanished in a chaos of echoing images. In a dream, I fled from that haunted and accursed pile, and ran swiftly and silently in the moonlight. When I returned to the churchyard place of marble and went down the steps, I found the stone trap door immovable. But I was not sorry, for I had hated the antique castle and the trees. Now I ride with the mocking and friendly ghouls on the night wind, and play by day amongst the catacombs of Nephren Ka in the sealed and unknown valley of Hadoth by the Nile. I know that light is not for me, save that of the moon over the rock tombs of Neb, nor any gaiety save the unnamed feasts of Nitocris beyond the Great Pyramid. Yet in my new wildness and freedom, I almost welcome the bitterness of alienage. 
For although Nepenthe has calmed me, I know always that I am an outsider, a stranger in this century and among those who are still men. This I have known ever since I stretched out my fingers to the abomination within that great gilded frame, stretched out my fingers and touched a cold and unyielding surface of polished glass. The following is a completely bullshit ad for a product that doesn't exist. This ad is designed merely to make one consider supporting the Dangerous History Podcast directly and is not actually trying to get you to buy some dumb shit so that the Dangerous History Podcast can get a tiny percentage commission. Hey guys, ever had this problem? Ever had the mail arrive at your house and it doesn't contain a box of random shit? I know we've all suffered from this inconvenience. Well, now we can solve that thanks to Box O Shit. Sign up for Box O Shit. And for a nominal fee per month, $9.95 per month plus shipping handling charge of $49.99 per week, you will get a weekly random box of shit and or crap arriving directly on your door. What'll be in it? Well, not literally feces, but the surprise is you don't know what'll be in it. Basically, it'll be whatever cruddy, useless, worthless ephemera we can find on sale that week. It might be Critters 2 Thermoses. It could be a box full of dozens and dozens of Jar Jar Binks action figures. Maybe it'll be a collection of every single movie ever made starring Steve Gutenberg on Betamax. You'll just never know, but you'll be glad you have it. No more arriving home to find your front stoop uncluttered, bereft of a box full of random worthless ephemera. Go to boxofshit.com slash DHP today and sign up. That's box, the letter O, shit dot com slash dhp seriously we'd rather not advertise random shit on the dhp so please consider going to patreon.com slash prophecyj so that we don't have to resort to such measures to stay in business thanks now back to the show richard cory by edward arlington robinson whenever richard cory went downtown we people on the pavement looked at him he was a gentleman from sole to crown clean favored and imperially slim and he was always quietly arrayed, and he was always human when he talked. But still he fluttered pulses when he said, Good morning, and he glittered when he walked. And he was rich, yes, richer than a king, and admirably schooled in every grace. In fine, we thought that he was everything, to make us wish that we were in his place. So on we worked, and waited for the light, and went without the meat, and cursed the bread. And Richard Corey, one calm summer night, went home and put a bullet through his head. The Legend of Sleepy Hollow by Washington Irving Found among the papers of the late Diedrich Knickerbocker In the bosom of one of those spacious coves which indent the eastern shore of the Hudson, at that broad expansion of the river, denominated by the ancient Dutch navigators the Tappan Zee, 
and where they always prudently shorted sail and implored the protection of St. Nicholas when they crossed. There lies a small market town, or rural port, which by some is called Greensburg, but which is more generally and properly known by the name of Terrytown. This name was given, we are told, in former days, by the good housewives of the adjacent country, from the inveterate propensity of their husbands to linger about the village tavern on market days. Be that as it may, I do not vouch for the fact, but merely advert to it, for the sake of being precise and authentic. Not far from this village, perhaps about two miles, there is a little valley, or rather lap of land among high hills, which is one of the quietest places in the whole world. A small brook glides through it, with just murmur enough to lull one to repose, and the occasional whistle of a quail or tapping of a woodpecker is almost the only sound that ever breaks in upon the uniform tranquility. I recollect that when a stripling, my first exploit in squirrel shooting was in a grove of tall walnut trees that shades one side of the valley. I had wandered into it at noontime, when all nature is peculiarly quiet, and was startled by the roar of my own gun as it broke the Sabbath stillness around and was prolonged and reverberated by the angry echoes. If ever I should wish for a retreat whither I might steal from the world and its distractions and dream quietly away the remnant of a troubled life, I know of none more promising than this little valley. From the listless repose of the place, and the peculiar character of its inhabitants, who are descendants from the original Dutch settlers, this sequestered glen has long been known by the name of Sleepy Hollow, and its rustic lads are called the Sleepy Hollow Boys throughout all the neighboring country. A drowsy, dreamy influence seems to hang over the land, and to pervade the very atmosphere. Some say that the place was bewitched by a high German doctor during the early days of the settlement. Others, that an old Indian chief, the prophet or wizard of his tribe, held his powwows there before the country was discovered by Master Hendrick Hudson. Certain it is the place still continues, under the sway of some witching power, that holds a spell over the minds of the good people, causing them to walk in a continual reverie. They are given to all kinds of marvelous beliefs, are subject to trances and visions, and frequently see strange sights and hear music and voices in the air. The whole neighborhood abounds with local tales, haunted spots, and twilight superstitions. Stars shoot and meteors glare oftener across the valley than in any other part of the country, and the nightmare, with her whole ninefold, seems to make it the favorite scene of her gambols. The dominant spirit, however, that haunts this enchanted region, and seems to be commander-in-chief of all the powers of the air, is the apparition of a figure on horseback without a head. It is said by some to be the ghost of a Hessian trooper, whose head had been carried away by a cannonball in some nameless battle during the Revolutionary War, and who is ever and anon seen by country folk hurrying along in the gloom of night, as if on the wings of the wind. His haunts are not confined to the valley, but extend at times to the adjacent roads, and especially to the vicinity of a church at no great distance. 
Indeed, certain of the most authentic historians of those parts, who have been careful in collecting and collating the floating facts concerning this specter, allege that the body of the trooper, having been buried in the churchyard, the ghost rides forth to the scene of battle in nightly quest of his head, and that the rushing speed with which he sometimes passes along the hollow, like a midnight blast, is owing to his being belated and in a hurry to get back to the churchyard before daybreak. Such is the general purport of this legendary superstition, which has furnished materials for many a wild story in that region of shadows. And the specter is known at all the country firesides by the name of the Headless Horseman of Sleepy Hollow. It is remarkable that the visionary propensity I have mentioned is not confined to the native inhabitants of the valley, but is unconsciously imbibed by everyone who resides there for a time. However wide awake they may have been before they entered that sleepy region, they are sure in a little time to inhale the witching influence of the air and begin to grow imaginative, to dream dreams, and see apparitions. I mention this peaceful spot with all possible laud, for it is in such little retired Dutch valleys, found here and there embosomed in the great state of New York, that population, manners, and customs remain fixed, while the great torrent of migration and improvement, which is making such incessant changes in other parts of this restless country, sweeps by them unobserved. They are like those little nooks of still water which border a rapid stream where we may see the straw and bubble riding quietly at anchor or slowly revolving in their mimic harbor, undisturbed by the rush of the passing current. Though many years have elapsed since I trod the drowsy shades of Sleepy Hollow, yet I question whether I shall not still find the same trees and the same families vegetating in its sheltered bosom. In this by-place of nature there abode, in a remote period of American history, that is to say, some thirty years since, a worthy white of the name of Ichabod Crane, who sojourned, or, as he expressed it, tarried in Sleepy Hollow, for the purpose of instructing the children of the vicinity. He was a native of Connecticut, a state which supplies the Union with pioneers for the mind, as well as for the forest, and sends forth yearly its legions of frontier woodmen and country schoolmasters. The cognomen of Crane was not inapplicable to his person. He was tall, but exceedingly lank, with narrow shoulders, long arms and legs, hands that dangled a mile out of his sleeves, feet that might have served for shovels, and his whole frame most loosely hung together. His head was small and flat at top, with huge ears, large green glassy eyes, and a long snipe nose, so that it looked like a weathercock perched upon his spindle neck to tell which way the wind blew. To see him striding along the profile of a hill on a windy day, with his clothes bagging and fluttering about him, one might have mistaken him for the genius of famine, descending upon the earth, or some scarecrow eloped from a cornfield. His schoolhouse was a low building of one large room, rudely constructed of logs, the windows partly glazed and partly patched with leaves of old copybooks. 
It was most ingeniously secured at vacant hours by a width twisted in the handle of the door and stakes set against the window shutters, so that though a thief might get in with perfect ease, he would find some embarrassment in getting out, an idea most probably borrowed by the architect, Joost van Houten, from the mystery of an eel pot. The schoolhouse stood in a rather lonely but pleasant situation, just at the foot of a woody hill, with a brook running close by and a formidable birch tree growing at one end of it. From hence the low murmur of his pupils' voices, conning over their lessons, might be heard in a drowsy summer's day, like the hum of a beehive, interrupted now and then by the authoritative voice of the master, in the tone of menace or command, or peradventure by the appalling sound of the birch, as he urged some tardy loiterer along the flowery path of knowledge. Truth to say, he was a conscientious man, and ever bore in mind the golden maxim, spare the rod and spoil the child. Ichabod Crane scholars certainly were not spoiled. I would not have it imagined, however, that he was one of those cruel potentates of the school who joy in the smart of their subjects. On the contrary, he administered justice with discrimination rather than severity, taking the burden off the backs of the weak and laying it on those of the strong. Your mere puny stripling that winced at the least flourish of the rod was passed by with indulgence, but the claims of justice were satisfied by inflicting a double portion on some little, tough, wrong-headed, broad-skirted Dutch urchin, who sulked and swelled and grew dogged and sullen beneath the birch. All this he called doing his duty by their parents, and he never inflicted a chastisement without following it by the assurance— so consolatory to the smarting urchin that he would remember it and thank him for it the longest day he had to live. When school hours were over, he was even the companion and playmate of the larger boys, and on holiday afternoons would convoy some of the smaller ones home, who happened to have pretty sisters or good housewives for mothers, noted for the comforts of the cupboard. Indeed, it behooved him to keep on good terms with his pupils. The revenue arising from his school was small and would have been scarcely sufficient to furnish him with daily bread, for he was a huge feeder and, though lank, had the dilating powers of an anaconda. But to help out his maintenance, he was, according to custom in those parts, boarded and lodged at the houses of the farmers whose children he instructed. With these, he lived successively a week at a time, thus going the rounds of the neighborhood, with all his worldly effects tied up in a cotton handkerchief. That all this might not be too onerous on the purses of his rustic patrons, who are apt to consider the costs of schooling a grievous burden and schoolmasters as mere drones, he had various ways of rendering himself both useful and agreeable. He assisted the farmers occasionally in the lighter labors of their farms, helped to make hay, mended the fences, took the horses to water, drove the cows from pasture, and cut wood for the winter fire. He laid aside, too, all the dominant dignity and absolute sway with which he lorded it in his little empire, the school, and became wonderfully gentle and ingratiating. He found favor in the eyes of the mothers by petting the children, particularly the youngest, and, like the lion bold, which 
so magnanimously the lamb did hold, he would sit with a child on one knee and rock a cradle with his foot for whole hours together. In addition to his other vocations, he was the singing master of the neighborhood and picked up many bright shillings by instructing the young folks in psalmody. It was a matter of no little vanity to him on Sundays to take his station in front of the church gallery with a band of chosen singers, where, in his own mind, he completely carried away the psalm from the parson. Certain it is, his voice resounded far above all the rest of the congregation, and there are peculiar quavers still to be heard in that church, which may even be heard half a mile off, quite to the opposite side of the mill pond, on a still Sunday morning, which are said to be legitimately descended from the nose of Ichabod Crane. Thus, by diverse little makeshifts, in that ingenious way which is commonly denominated by hook and by crook, the worthy pedagogue got on tolerably enough, and was thought by all who understood nothing of the labor of headwork to have a wonderfully easy life of it. The schoolmaster is generally a man of some importance in the female circle of a rural neighborhood, being considered a kind of idle, gentlemanlike personage of vastly superior tastes and accomplishments to the rough country swains, and, indeed, inferior in learning only to the parson. His appearance, therefore, is apt to occasion some little stir at the tea-table of a farmhouse, and the addition of a supernumerary dish of cakes or sweetmeats, or, peradventure, the parade of a silver teapot. Our man of letters, therefore, was peculiarly happy in the smiles of all the country damsels. How he would figure among them in the churchyard, between services on Sundays, gathering grapes for them from the wild vines that overran the surrounding trees, reciting for their amusement all the epitaphs on the tombstones, or sauntering with a whole bevy of them along the banks of the adjacent mill-pond, while the more bashful country bumpkins hung sheepishly back, envying his superior elegance and address. From his half-itinerant life, also, he was a kind of traveling gazette, carrying the whole budget of local gossip from house to house, so that his appearance was always greeted with satisfaction. He was, moreover, esteemed by the women as a man of great erudition, for he had read several books quite through, and was a perfect master of Cotton Mather's History of New England Witchcraft, in which, by the way, he most firmly and potently believed. He was, in fact, an odd mixture of small shrewdness and simple credulity. His appetite for the marvelous and his powers of digesting it were equally extraordinary, and both had been increased by his residence in this spellbound region. No tale was too gross or monstrous for his capacious swallow. It was often his delight, after his school was dismissed in the afternoon, to stretch himself on the rich bed of clover bordering the little brook that whimpered by his schoolhouse, and there con over old Mather's direful tales, until the gathering dusk of evening made the printed page a mere mist before his eyes. Then, as he wended his way by the swamp and stream and awful woodland, to the farmhouse where he happened to be quartered, every sound of nature at that witching hour fluttered his excited imagination. The moan of the whippoorwill from the hillside, the boding cry of the tree-toad, the harbinger of storm, the dreary hooting of the screech-owl, or the sudden rustling in the thicket of birds frightened from their roost. 
The fireflies, too, which sparkled most vividly in the darkest places, now and then startled him, as one of uncommon brightness would stream across his path. And if by chance a huge blockhead of a beetle came winging his blundering flight against him, the poor varlet was ready to give up the ghost with the idea that he was struck with a witch's token. His only resource on such occasions, either to drown thought or drive away evil spirits, was to sing psalm tunes and the good people of Sleepy Hollow, as they sat by their doors of an evening, were often filled with awe at hearing his nasal melody in linked sweetness long drawn out, floating from the distant hill or along the dusky road. Another of his sources of fearful pleasure was to pass long winter evenings with the old Dutch wives as they sat spinning by the fire with a row of apples roasting and spluttering along the hearth and listen to their marvelous tales of ghosts and goblins and haunted fields and haunted brooks and haunted bridges and haunted houses and particularly of the headless horseman or galloping hessen of the hollow as they sometimes called him. He would delight them equally by his anecdotes of witchcraft and of the direful omens and pretentious sights and sounds in the air, which prevailed in the earlier times of Connecticut, and would frighten them woefully with speculations upon comets and shooting stars, and with the alarming fact that the world did absolutely turn around, and that they were half the time topsy-turvy. But if there was a pleasure in all this while snugly cuddling in the chimney corner of a chamber that was all of a ruddy glow from the crackling wood fire, and where, of course, no specter dared to show its face, it was dearly purchased by the terrors of his subsequent walk homewards. With what wistful look did he eye every trembling ray of light streaming across the waste fields from some distant window? How often was he appalled by some shrub covered with snow, which, like a sheeted specter, beset his very path? How often did he shrink with curdling awe at the sound of his own steps on the frosty crust beneath his feet, and dread to look over his shoulder, lest he should behold some uncouth being trampling close behind him? And how often was he thrown into complete dismay by some rushing blast howling among the trees in the idea that it was the galloping Hessian on one of his nightly scourings. All of these, however, were mere terrors of the night, phantoms of the mind that walk in darkness. And though he had seen many specters in his time and been more than once beset by Satan in diverse shapes in his lonely perambulations, yet daylight put an end to all these evils and he would have passed a pleasant life of it, in spite of the devil and all of his works, if his path had not been crossed by a being that causes more perplexity to mortal man than ghosts, goblins, and the whole race of witches put together. That was a woman. Among the musical disciples who assembled one evening in each week to recite his instructions in psalmody was Katrina Van Tassel, the daughter and only child of a substantial Dutch farmer. She was a blooming lass of fresh eighteen, plump as a partridge, ripe and melting and rosy-cheeked as one of her father's peaches, and universally famed, not merely for her beauty, but her vast expectations. She was withal a little of a coquette, as might be perceived even in her dress, which was a mixture of ancient and modern fashions, as most suited to set off her charms. 
She wore the ornaments of pure yellow gold, which her great-great-grandmother had brought over from Sardom. The tempting stomacher of the olden time, and withal a provokingly short petticoat, to display the prettiest foot and ankle in the country round. Ichabod Crane had a soft and foolish heart towards the sex, and it is not to be wondered at that so tempting a morsel soon found favor in his eyes, more especially after he had visited her in her paternal mansion. Old Balta's fantassel was a perfect picture of a thriving, contented, liberal-hearted farmer. He seldom, it is true, sent either his eyes or his thoughts beyond the boundaries of his own farm, but within those, everything was snug, happy, and well-conditioned. He was satisfied with his wealth, but not proud of it, and piqued himself upon the hearty abundance rather than the style in which he lived. His stronghold was situated on the banks of the Hudson, in one of those green, sheltered, fertile nooks in which the Dutch farmers are so fond of nestling. A great elm tree spread its broad branches over it, at the foot of which bubbled up a spring of the softest and sweetest water, in a little well formed of a barrel, and then stole sparkling away through the grass to a neighboring brook that babbled along among alders and dwarf willows. Hard by the farmhouse was a vast barn, that might have served for a church, every window and crevice of which seemed bursting forth with the treasures of the farm. The flail was busily resounding within it from morning to night, swallows and martins skimmed twittering above the eaves, and rows of pigeons, some with one eye turned up, as if watching the weather, some with their heads under their wings or buried in their bosoms, and others swelling and cooing and bowing about their dames, were enjoying the sunshine of the roof." Sleek, unwieldy porkers were grunting in the repose and abundance of their pens, from whence sallied forth now and then troops of sucking pigs as if to snuff the air. A stately squadron of snowy geese were riding in an adjoining pond, convoying whole fleets of ducks. Regiments of turkeys were gobbling through the farmyard, and guinea fowls fretting about it like ill-tempered housewives with their peevish, discontented cry. Before the barn door strutted the gallant cock, that pattern of a husband, a warrior, and fine gentleman, clapping his burnished wings, and crowing in the pride and gladness of his heart, sometimes tearing up the earth with his feet, and then generously calling his ever-hungry family of wives and children to enjoy the rich morsel which he had discovered. The pedagogue's mouth watered as he looked upon this sumptuous promise of luxurious winter fare. In his devouring mind's eye, he pictured himself, every roasting pig, running about with a pudding in his belly and an apple in his mouth. The pigeons were snugly put to bed in a comfortable pie and tucked in with a coverlet of crust. The geese were swimming in their own gravy, and the ducks pairing cozily in dishes, like snug married couples, with a decent competency of onion sauce. In the porkers he saw carved out the future sleek side of bacon and juicy relishing ham, not a turkey, but he beheld it daintily trussed up with its gizzard under its wing and peradventure a necklace of savory sausages. And even bright Chanticleer himself lay sprawling on his back in a side dish with uplifted claws as if craving that quarter which his chivalrous spirit disdained to ask while living. 
as the enraptured Ichabod fancied all this, and, and as he rolled his great green eyes over the fat meadowlands, the rich fields of wheat, of rye, of buckwheat, and Indian corn, and the orchards burdened with ruddy fruit, which surrounded the warm tenement of Van Tassel, his heart yearned after the damsel who was to inherit these domains, and his imagination expanded with the idea how they might be readily turned into cash, and the money invested in immense tracts of wild land and shingle palaces in the wilderness. Nay, his busy fancy already realized his hopes, and presented to him the blooming Katrina, with a whole family of children, mounted on the top of a wagon, loaded with household trumpery, with pots and kettles dangling beneath, and he beheld himself bestriding a pacing mare, with a colt at her heels, setting out for Kentucky, or Tennessee, or Lord knows where. When he entered the house, the conquest of his heart was complete— it was one of those spacious farmhouses, with high-ridged but lowly sloping roofs, built in the style handed down from the first Dutch settlers. The low projecting eaves forming a piazza along the front, capable of being closed up in bad weather. Under this were hung flails, harnesses, various utensils of husbandry, and nets for fishing in the neighboring river. Benches were built along the sides for summer use, and a great spinning wheel at one end with a churn at the other showed the various usage to which the important porch might be devoted. From this piazza, the wandering Ichabod entered the hall, which formed the center of the mansion and the place of usual residence. Here, rows of resplendent pewter, ranged on a long dresser, dazzled his eyes. In one corner stood a huge bag of wool, ready to be spun. In another, a quantity of Lindsay Woolsey just from the loom. Ears of Indian corn and strings of dried apples and peaches hung in gay festoons along the walls, mingled with the god of red peppers. And a door left ajar gave him a peep into the best parlor, where the claw-footed chairs and dark mahogany tables shone like mirrors. And irons, with their... Accompanying shovel and tongs glistened from their covert of asparagus tops. Mock oranges and conch shells decorated the mantelpiece. Strings of various colored bird eggs were suspended above it. A great ostrich egg was hung from the center of the room, and a corner cupboard, knowingly left open, displayed immense treasures of old silver and well-mended china. From the moment Ichabod laid his eyes upon these regions of delight, the peace of his mind was at an end, and his only study was how to gain the affections of the peerless daughter of Van Tassel. In this enterprise, however, he had more real difficulties than generally fell to the lot of a knight-errant of yore, who seldom had anything but giants, enchanters, fiery dragons, and such like easily conquered adversaries to contend with and to make his way merely through gates of iron brass and walls of adamant to the castle keep where the lady of his heart was confined. All of which he achieved as easily as a man would carve his way to the center of a Christmas pie, and then the lady gave him her hand as a matter of course. Ichabod, on the contrary, had to win his way to the heart of a country coquette, beset with a labyrinth of whims and caprices, which were forever presenting new difficulties and impediments, and he had to encounter a host of fearful adversaries of real flesh and blood, the numerous rustic admirers who beset every portal to her heart, 
keeping a watchful and angry eye upon each other, but ready to fly out in the common cause against any new competitor. Among these, the most formidable was a burly, roaring, roistering blade of the name of Abraham, or, according to the Dutch abbreviation, Brahm von Brunt, the hero of the country round, which rang with his feats of strength and hardihood. He was broad-shouldered and double-jointed, with short curly black hair and a bluff but not unpleasant countenance, having a mingled air of fun and arrogance. From his Herculean frame and great powers of limb, he had received the nickname of Brom Bones, by which he was universally known. He was famed for great knowledge and skill in horsemanship, being as dexterous on horseback as a Tartar. He was foremost at all races and cockfights, and with the ascendancy which bodily strength always acquires in rustic life, was the umpire in all disputes, setting his hat on one side and giving his decisions with an air and tone that admitted of no gainsay or appeal. He was always ready for either a fight or a frolic, but had more mischief than ill will in his composition, and with all his overbearing roughness, there was a strong dash of waggish good humor at bottom. He had three or four boon companions who regarded him as their model, and at the head of whom he scoured the country, attending every scene of feud or merriment for miles around. In cold weather he was distinguished by a fur cap, surmounted with a flaunting fox's tail, and when the folks at a country gathering descried this well-known crest at a distance, whisking about among a squad of hard riders, they always stood by for a squall. Sometimes his crew would be heard dashing along past the farmhouses at midnight with whoop and halloo, like a troop of Don Cossacks, and the old dames, startled out of their sleep, would listen for a moment till the hurry-scurry had clattered by, and then exclaim, Aye, there goes Brom Bones and his gang. The neighbors looked upon him with a mixture of awe, admiration, and goodwill, and when any madcap prank or rustic brawl occurred in the vicinity, they always shook their heads and warranted Brom Bones was at the bottom of it. This rantable hero had, for some time, singled out the blooming Katrina for the object of his uncouth gallantries, and though his amorous toings were something like the gentle caresses and endearments of a bear, yet it was whispered that she did not altogether discourage his hopes. Certain it is, his advances were signals for rival candidates to retire, who felt no inclination to cross a lion in his amours insomuch that when his horse was seen tied to Van Tassel's paling on a Sunday night, a sure sign that his master was courting, or, as it is termed, sparking within, all other suitors passed by in despair and carried the war into other quarters. Such was the formidable rival with whom Ichabod Crane had to contend, and, considering all things, a stouter man than he would have shrunk from the competition, and a wiser man would have despaired. He had, however, a happy mixture of pliability and perseverance in his nature. He was in form and spirit like a supplejack, yielding but tough. Though he bent, he never broke, and though he bowed beneath the slightest pressure, yet the moment it was away, jerk, he was as erect and carried his head as high as ever. To have taken the field openly against his rival would have been madness, for he was not a man to be thwarted in his amours any more than that stormy lover Achilles. 
Ichabod, therefore, made his advances in a quiet and gently insinuating manner. Under cover of his character of singing master, he made frequent visits at the farmhouse. Not that he had anything to apprehend from the meddlesome interference of parents, which is so often a stumbling block to the paths of lovers. Balt Van Tassel was an easy, indulgent soul. He loved his daughter better even than his pipe, and, like a reasonable man and an excellent father, let her have her way in everything. His notable little wife, too, had enough to do to attend to her housekeeping and manage her poultry, for, as she sagely observed, ducks and geese are foolish things and must be looked after, but girls can take care of themselves. Thus, while the busy dame bustled about the house or plied her spinning wheel at one end of the piazza, Honest Balt would sit smoking his pipe at the other, watching the achievements of a little wooden warrior who, armed with a sword in each hand, was most valiantly fighting the wind on the pinnacle of the barn. In the meantime, Ichabod would carry on his suit with the daughter by the side of the spring under the great elm, or sauntering along in the twilight, that hour so favorable to the lover's eloquence. I profess not to know how women's hearts are wooed in one. To me, they have always been matters of riddle and admiration. Some seem to have but one vulnerable point or door of access, while others have a thousand avenues and may be captured in a thousand different ways. It is a great triumph of skill to gain the former, but a still greater proof of generalship to maintain possession of the latter, for man must battle for his fortress at every door and window. He who wins a thousand common hearts is therefore entitled to some renown, but he who keeps undisputed sway over the heart of a coquette is indeed a hero. Certain it is, this was not the case with the redoubtable Brom Bones, and from the moment Ichabod Crane made his advances, the interests of the former evidently declined. His horse was no longer seen tied to the palings on Sunday nights, and a deadly feud gradually arose between him and the preceptor of Sleepy Hollow. Brom, who had a high degree of rough chivalry in his nature, would fain have carried matters to open warfare and have settled their pretensions to the lady, according to the mode of those most concise and simple reasoners, the knights errant of yore, by single combat. But Ichabod was too conscious of the superior might of his adversary to enter the lists against him. He had overheard a boast of bones that he would double the schoolmaster up and lay him on a shelf of his own schoolhouse, and he was too wary to give him an opportunity. There was something extremely provoking in this obstinately pacific system. It left Brom no alternative but to draw upon the funds of rustic waggery in his disposition and to play off boorish and practical jokes upon his rival. Ichabod became the object of whimsical persecution to Bones and his gang of rough riders. They carried his hitherto peaceful domains, smoked out his singing school by stopping up the chimney, broke into the schoolhouse at night in spite of its formidable fastenings of width and window stakes, and turned everything topsy-turvy so that the poor schoolmaster began to think all the witches in the country held their meetings there. But what was still more annoying, Brahm took all opportunities of turning him into ridicule in presence of his mistress, and had a scoundrel dog whom he taught to whine in the most ludicrous manner, and introduced as a rival of Ichabod's to instruct her in psalmody. 
In this way, matters went on for some time, without producing any material effect on the relative situations of the contending powers. On a fine, autumnal afternoon, Ichabod, in pensive mood, sat enthroned on the lofty stool from whence he usually watched all the concerns of his little literary realm. In his hand he swayed a feral, that scepter of despotic power. The birch of justice reposed on three nails behind the throne, a constant terror to evildoers, while on the desk before him might be seen sundry contraband articles and prohibited weapons, detected upon the persons of idle urchins, such as half-munched apples, pop-guns, whirligigs, fly-cages, and whole legions of rampant little paper gamecocks. Apparently there had been some appalling act of justice recently inflicted, for his scholars were all busily intent upon their books, or slyly whispering behind them with one eye kept upon the master, and a kind of buzzing stillness reigned throughout the schoolroom. It was suddenly interrupted by the appearance of a negro in tow-cloth jacket and trousers, a round-crowned fragment of a hat like the cap of mercury, and mounted on the back of a ragged, wild, half-broken colt, which he managed with a rope by way of halter. He came clattering up to the school door with an invitation to Ichabod to attend a merrymaking or quilting frolic to be held that evening at Minier Van Tassel's, and having delivered his message with that air of importance and effort at fine language, which a negro is apt to display on petty embassies of the kind, he dashed over the brook and was seen scampering away up the hollow, full of the importance and hurry of the mission. All was now bustle and hubbub in the late quiet schoolroom. The scholars were hurried through their lessons without stopping at trifles. Those who were nimble skipped over half with impunity, and those who were tardy had a smart application now and then in the rear to quicken their speed or help them over a tall word. Books were flung aside without being put away on the shelves, inkstands were overturned, benches thrown down, and the whole school was turned loose an hour before the usual time, bursting forth like a legion of young imps, yelping and racketing about the green and joy at their early emancipation. The gallant Ichabod now spent at least an extra half-hour at his toilet, brushing and furbishing up his best, and indeed only suit of rusty black, and arranging his locks by a bit of broken looking-glass that hung up in the schoolhouse. That he might make his appearance before his mistress in the true style of a cavalier, he borrowed a horse from the farmer with whom he was domiciled, a choleric old Dutchman of the name Hans van Ripper, and thus gallantly mounted, issued forth like a knight-errant in quest of adventures." But it is meet I should, in the true spirit of romantic story, give some account of the looks and equipment of my hero and his steed. The animal he bestrode was a broken-down plough-horse, that had outlived almost everything but its viciousness. He was gaunt and shagged, with a ewe-neck and a head like a hammer. His rusty mane and tail were tangled and knotted with burrs. One eye had lost its pupil and was glaring and spectral, but the other had the gleam of a genuine devil in it. Still, he must have had fire and metal in his day, if we may judge from the name he bore of Gunpowder. He had in fact been a favorite steed of his master's, the choleric Van Ripper, who was a furious rider and had infused, very probably, some of his own spirit into the animal. For, old and broken down as he looked, there was more of the lurking devil in him than in any young filly in the country. 
Ichabod was a suitable figure for such a steed. He rode with short stirrups, which brought his knees up nearly to the pommel of the saddle. His sharp elbows stuck out like grasshoppers. He carried his whip perpendicularly in his hand, like a scepter, and as his horse jogged on, the motion of his arms was not unlike the flapping of a pair of wings. A small wool hat rested on the top of his nose, for so his scanty strip of forehead might be called, and the skirts of his black coat fluttered out almost to the horse's tail. Such was the appearance of Ichabod and his steed as they shambled out the gate of Hans Van Ripper, and it was altogether such an apparition as is seldom to be met with in broad daylight. It was, as I have said, a fine autumnal day. The sky was clear and serene, and nature wore that rich and golden livery which we always associate with the idea of abundance. The forests had put on their sober brown and yellow, while some of the tenderer kind had been nipped by the frosts into brilliant dyes of orange, purple, and scarlet. Streaming files of wild ducks began to make their appearance high in the air. The bark of the squirrel might be heard from the groves of beech and hickory nuts, and the pensive whistle of the quail at intervals from the neighboring stubble field. The small birds were taking their farewell banquets. In the fullness of their revelry, they fluttered, chirping and frolicking from bush to bush and tree to tree, capricious from the very profusion and variety around them. There was the honest cock-robin, the favorite game of stripling sportsmen, with its loud, querulous note, and the twittering blackbirds flying in sable clouds, and the golden-winged woodpecker with his crimson crest, his broad black gorget, and splendid plumage, and the cedar-bird with its red-tipped wings and yellow-tipped tail and its little Montero cap of feathers and the blue jay, that noisy coxcomb, in his gay light blue coat with white underclothes, screaming and chattering, nodding and bobbing and bowing, and pretending to be on good terms with every songster of the grove. As Ichabod jogged slowly on his way, his eye, ever open to every symptom of culinary abundance, ranged with delight over the treasures of jolly autumn. On all sides he beheld vast store of apples, some hanging in oppressive opulence on the trees, some gathered into baskets and barrels for the market, others heaped up in rich piles for the cider press. Farther on he beheld great fields of Indian corn, with its golden ears peeping from their leafy coverts, and holding out the promise of cakes and hasty pudding and the yellow pumpkins lying beneath them, turning up their fair round bellies to the sun, and giving ample prospects of the most luxurious of pies. And anon he passed the fragrant buckwheat fields, breathing the odor of the beehive, and as he beheld them, soft anticipations stole over his mind of dainty slapjacks, well-buttered and garnished with honey or treacle, by the delicate little dimpled hand of Katrina Van Tassel. Thus feeding his mind with many sweet thoughts and sugared suppositions, he journeyed along the sides of a range of hills which look out upon some of the goodliest scenes of the mighty Hudson. The sun gradually wheeled his broad disk down in the west. 
the wide bosom of the Tappan Zee lay motionless and glassy, excepting that here and there a gentle undulation waved and prolonged the blue shadow of the distant mountain. A few amber clouds floated in the sky, without a breath of air to move them. The horizon was of a fine golden tint, changing gradually into a pure apple green, and from that into the deep blue of the mid-heaven. A slanting ray lingered on the woody crests of the precipices that overhung some parts of the river, giving greater depth to the dark gray and purple of their rocky sides. A sloop was loitering in the distance, dropping slowly down with the tide, her sail hanging uselessly against the mast. And as the reflections of the sky gleamed along the still water, it seemed as if the vessel was suspended in the air. It was toward evening that Ichabod arrived at the castle of the Hare Van Tassel, which he found thronged with the pride and flower of the adjacent country. Old farmers, a spare, leathern-faced race in homespun coats and breeches, blue stockings, huge shoes, and magnificent pewter buckles, their brisk, withered little dames in close-crimped caps, long-waisted short gowns, homespun petticoats, with scissors and pin cushions, and gay calico pockets hanging on the outside. Buxom lasses, almost as antiquated as their mothers, excepting where a straw hat, a fine ribbon, or perhaps a white frock, gave symptoms of city innovation. The sons, in short, square-skirted coats, with rows of stupendous brass buttons, and their hair generally cued in the fashion of the times, especially if they could procure an eelskin for the purpose, it being esteemed throughout the country as a potent nourisher and strengthener of the hair. Brombones, however, was the hero of the scene, having come to the gathering on his favorite steed, Daredevil, a creature, like himself, full of metal and mischief, and which no one but himself could manage. He was, in fact, noted for preferring vicious animals, given to all kinds of tricks, which kept the rider in constant risk of his neck, for he held a tractable, well-broken horse as unworthy of a lad of spirit. Fain would I pause to dwell upon the world of charms that burst upon the enraptured gaze of my hero as he entered the state parlor of Van Tassel's mansion. Not those of the bevy of buxom lasses, with their luxurious display of red and white, but the ample charms of a genuine Dutch country tea-table in the sumptuous time of autumn. Such heaped-up platters of cakes of various and almost indescribable kinds, known only to experienced Dutch housewives. There was the doughty doughnut, the tender olicook, and the brisk and crumbling cruller, sweet cakes and short cakes, ginger cakes and honey cakes, and the whole family of cakes. And then there were apple pies and peach pies and pumpkin pies. Besides slices of ham and smoked beef, and moreover delectable dishes of preserved plums and peaches and pears and quinces, not to mention broiled shad and roasted chickens, together with bowls of milk and cream, all mingled higgledy-piggledy pretty much as I have enumerated them, with the motherly teapot sending up its clouds of vapor from the mist. Heaven bless the mark." I want breath and time to discuss this banquet as it deserves, and am too eager to get on with my story. Happily, Ichabod Crane was not in so great a hurry as his historian, but did ample justice to every dainty.
He was a kind and thankful creature whose heart dilated in proportion as his skin was filled with good cheer, and whose spirits rose with eating as some men's do with drink. He could not help, too, rolling his large eyes round him as he ate, and chuckling with the possibility that he might one day be lord of all this scene of almost unimaginable luxury and splendor. Then he thought how soon he'd turn his back upon the old schoolhouse, snap his fingers in the faces of Hans Van Ripper and every other niggardly patron, and kick any itinerant pedagogue out of doors that should dare to call him comrade. Old Baltus Van Tassel moved about among his guests with a face dilated with content and good humor, round and jolly as the harvest moon. His hospitable attentions were brief but expressive, being confined to a shake of the hand, a slap on the shoulder, a loud laugh, and a pressing invitation to fall to and help themselves. And now the sound of the music from the common room or hall summoned to the dance. The musician was an old gray-headed negro who had been the itinerant orchestra of the neighborhood for more than half a century. His instrument was as old and battered as himself. The greater part of the time he scraped on two or three strings, accompanying every movement of the bow with a motion of his head, bowing almost to the ground and stamping with his foot whenever a fresh couple were to start. Ichabod prided himself upon his dancing as much as upon his vocal powers. Not a limb, not a fiber about him was idle, and to have seen his loosely hung frame in full motion and clattering about the room, you would have thought St. Vitus himself, that blessed patron of the dance, was figuring before you in person. He was the admiration of all the Negroes, who, having gathered of all ages and sizes from the farm and the neighborhood, stood forming a pyramid of shining black faces at every door and window, gazing with delight at the scene, rolling their white eyeballs and showing grinning rows of ivory from ear to ear. How could the flogger of urchins be otherwise than animated and joyous? The lady of his heart was his partner in the dance and smiling graciously in reply to all his amorous oglings, while Prom Bones, sorely smitten with love and jealousy, sat brooding by himself in one corner. When the dance was at an end, Ichabod was attracted to a knot of the sager folks who, with old Van Tassel, sat smoking at one end of the piazza, gossiping over former times and drawing out long stories about the war. This neighborhood, at the time of which I am speaking, was one of those highly favored places which abound with chronicle and great men. The British and American line had run near it during the war. It had, therefore, been the scene of marauding and infested with refugees, cowboys, and all kinds of border chivalry. Just sufficient time had elapsed to enable every storyteller to dress up his tale with a little becoming fiction, and in the indistinctness of his recollection, to make himself the hero of every exploit. There was the story of Dafu Martling, a large blue-bearded Dutchman who had nearly taken a British frigate with his old iron nine-pounder from a mud breastwork, only that his gun had burst at the sixth discharge. And there was an old gentleman who shall be nameless, being too rich a miner to be lightly mentioned, who, in the Battle of White Plains, being an excellent master of defense, parried a musket ball with a small sword, insomuch that he absolutely felt it whiz around the blade and glance off at the hilt, in proof of which he was ready at any time to show the sword with the hilt a little bent. 
There were several more that had been equally great in the field, not one of whom but was persuaded that he had a considerable hand in bringing the war to a happy termination. But all these were nothing to the tales of ghosts and apparitions that succeeded. The neighborhood is rich in legendary treasures of the kind. Local tales and superstitions thrive best in these sheltered, long-settled retreats, but are trampled underfoot by the shifting throng that forms the population of most our country places. Besides, there is no encouragement for ghosts in most of our villages, for they have scarcely had time to finish their first nap and turn themselves in their graves before their surviving friends have traveled away from the neighborhood so that when they turn out at night to walk their rounds, they have no acquaintance left to call upon. This is perhaps the reason why we so seldom hear of ghosts, except in our long-established Dutch communities. The immediate cause, however, of the prevalence of supernatural stories in these parts was doubtless owing to the vicinity of Sleepy Hollow. There was a contagion in the very air that blew from that haunted region. It breathed forth an atmosphere of dreams and fancies, infecting all the land. Several of the Sleepy Hollow people were present at Van Tassel's and, as usual, were doling out their wild and wonderful legends. Many dismal tales were told about funeral trains, and morning cries and wailings heard and seen about the great tree where the unfortunate Major Andre was taken, and which stood in the neighborhood. Some mention was made also of the woman in white that haunted the dark glen at Raven Rock, and was often heard to shriek on winter nights before a storm, having perished there in the snow. The chief part of the stories, however, turned upon the favorite specter of Sleepy Hollow, the headless horseman, who had been heard several times of late patrolling the country and it was said tethered his horse nightly among the graves in the churchyard. The sequestered situation of this church seems always to have made it a favorite haunt of troubled spirits. It stands on a knoll, surrounded by locust trees and lofty elms, from among which its decent, whitewashed walls shine modestly forth like Christian purity beaming through the shades of retirement. A gentle slope transcends from it to a silver sheet of water, bordered by high trees, between which peeps may be caught at the blue hills of the Hudson. To look upon its grass-grown yard, where the sunbeams seem to sleep so quietly, one would think that there, at least, the dead might rest in peace. On one side of the church extends a wide, woody dell, along which raves a large brook, among broken rocks and trunks of fallen trees. Over a deep black part of the stream, not far from the church, was formerly thrown a wooden bridge. The road that led to it and the bridge itself were thickly shaded by overhanging trees, which cast a gloom about it even in the daytime, but occasioned a fearful darkness at night. Such was one of the favorite haunts of the Headless Horseman, and the place where he was most frequently encountered. The tale was told of old Brower, a most 
heretical disbeliever in ghosts, how he met the horseman returning from his foray into Sleepy Hollow and was obliged to get up behind him, how they galloped over bush and brake, over hill and swamp, until they reached the bridge when the headless horseman suddenly turned into a skeleton, threw old Brower into the brook, and sprang away over the treetops with a clap of thunder. This story was immediately matched by a thrice-marvelous adventure of Brom Bones, who made light of the galloping Hessian as an errant jockey. He affirmed that on returning one night from the neighboring village of Sing Sing, he had been overtaken by this midnight trooper, that he had offered to race with him for a bowl of punch, and should have won it too, for Daredevil beat the goblin horse all hollow. But just as they came to the church bridge, the Hessian bolted and vanished in a flash of fire. All these tales, told in that drowsy undertone with which men talk in the dark, the countenances of the listeners, only now and then receiving a casual gleam from the glare of a pipe, sank deep in the mind of Ichabod. He repaid them in kind with large extracts from his invaluable author, Cotton Mather, and added many marvelous events that had taken place in his native state of Connecticut and fearful sights which he had seen in his nightly walks about Sleepy Hollow. The revel now gradually broke up. The old farmers gathered together their families in their wagons and were heard for some time rattling along the hollow roads and over the distant hills. Some of the damsels mounted on pillions behind their favorite swains, and their light-hearted laughter, mingling with the clatter of hoofs, echoed among the silent woodlands, sounding fainter and fainter until they gradually died away, and the late scene of noise and frolic was all silent and deserted. Ichabod only lingered behind, according to the custom of country lovers, to have a tete-a-tete with the heiress, fully convinced that he was now on the high road to success. What passed at this interview I will not pretend to say, for in fact I do not know. Something, however, I fear me, must have gone wrong, for he certainly sallied forth, after no very great interval, with an air quite desolate and chapfallen. Oh, these women, these women! Could that girl have been playing off any of her coquettish tricks? Was her encouragement of the poor pedagogue all a mere sham to secure her conquest of his rival? Heaven only knows, not I. Let it suffice to say, Ichabod stole forth with the air of one who has been sacking a hen roost rather than a fair lady's heart. Without looking to the right or left to notice the scene of rural wealth on which he had so often gloated, he went straight to the table and with several hearty cuffs and kicks roused his steed most uncourteously from the comfortable quarters in which he was soundly sleeping dreaming of mountains of corn and oats, and whole valleys of timothy and clover. It was the very witching time of night that Ichabod, heavy-hearted and crestfallen, pursued his travels homewards, along the sides of the lofty hills which rise above Terrytown, and which he had traversed so cheerily in the afternoon. The hour was as dismal as himself. Far below him 
the Tappan Zee spread its dusky and indistinct waste of waters, with here and there the tall mast of a sloop, riding quietly at anchor under the land. In the dead hush of midnight, he could even hear the barking of the watchdog from the opposite shore of the Hudson. But it was so vague and faint as only to give an idea of his distance from this faithful companion of man. Now and then, too, the long-drawn crowing of a cock, accidentally awakened, would sound far, far off from some farmhouse away among the hills. But it was like a dreaming sound in his ear. No signs of life occurred near him, but occasionally the melancholy chirp of a cricket, or perhaps the guttural twang of a bullfrog from a neighboring marsh, as if sleeping uncomfortably and turning suddenly in his bed. All the stories of ghosts and goblins that he had heard in the afternoon now came crowding upon his recollection. The night grew darker and darker. The stars seemed to sink deeper in the sky, and driving clouds occasionally hid them from his sight. He had never felt so lonely and dismal. He was, moreover, approaching the very place where many of the scenes of the ghost stories had been laid. In the center of the road stood an enormous tulip tree, which towered like a giant above all the other trees of the neighborhood and formed a kind of landmark. Its limbs were gnarled and fantastic, large enough to form trunks for ordinary trees, twisting down almost to the earth and rising again into the air. It was connected with the tragical story of the unfortunate Andre, who had been taken prisoner hard by and was universally known by the name of Major Andre's Tree. The common people regarded it with a mixture of respect and superstition, partly out of sympathy for the fate of its ill-starred namesake, and partly from the tales of strange sights and doleful lamentations told concerning it. As Ichabod approached this fearful tree, he began to whistle. He thought his whistle was answered. It was but a blast sweeping sharply through the dry branches. As he approached a little nearer, he thought he saw something white hanging in the midst of the tree. He paused and ceased whistling, but on looking more narrowly, perceived that it was a place where the tree had been scathed by lightning and the white wood laid bare. Suddenly he heard a groan. His teeth chattered, and his knees smote against the saddle. It was but the rubbing of one huge bough upon another, as they were swayed about by the breeze. He passed the tree in safety, but new perils lay before him. About two hundred yards from the tree, a small brook crossed the road and ran into a marshy and thickly wooded glen known by the name of Wiley Swamp. A few rough logs laid side by side served for a bridge over this stream. On that side of the road where the brook entered the wood, a group of oaks and chestnuts, matted thick with wild grapevines, threw a cavernous gloom over it. To pass this bridge was the severest trial. It was at this identical spot that the unfortunate Andre was captured, and under the cover of those chestnuts and vines were the sturdy yeoman concealed who surprised him. This has ever since been considered a haunted stream, and fearful are the feelings of the schoolboy who has to pass it alone after dark. 
As he approached the stream, his heart began to thump. He summoned up, however, all his resolution, gave his horse half a score of kicks in the ribs, and attempted to dash briskly across the bridge. But instead of starting forward, the perverse old animal made a lateral movement and ran broadside against the fence. Ichabod, whose fears increased with the delay, jerked the reins on the other side and kicked lustily with the contrary foot. It was all in vain. His steed started, it is true, but it was only to plunge to the opposite side of the road into a thicket of brambles and alder bushes. The schoolmaster now bestowed both whip and heel upon the starveling ribs of old gunpowder, who dashed forward, snuffling and snorting, but came to a stand just by the bridge, with a suddenness that had nearly sent his rider sprawling over his head. Just at this moment, a plashy tramp by the side of the bridge caught the sensitive ear of Ichabod. In the dark shadow of the grove, on the margin of the brook, he beheld something huge, misshapen, and towering. It stirred not, but seemed gathered up in the gloom, like some gigantic monster ready to spring upon the traveler. The hair of the affrighted pedagogue now rose upon his head with terror. What was to be done? To turn and fly was now too late, and besides, what chance was there of escaping ghost or goblin, if such it was, which could ride upon the wings of the wind? Summoning up, therefore, a show of courage, he demanded in stammering accents, "'Who who are you?' He received no reply. He repeated his demand in a still more agitated voice. Still, there was no answer." Once more he cudgeled the sides of the inflexible gunpowder, and shutting his eyes, broke forth with involuntary fervor into a psalm tune. Just then the shadowy object of alarm put itself in motion, and with a scramble and a bound stood at once in the middle of the road. Though the night was dark and dismal, yet the form of the unknown might now in some degree be ascertained, he appeared to be a horseman of large dimensions, and mounted on a black horse of powerful frame. He made no offer of molestation or sociability, but kept aloof on one side of the road, jogging along on the blind side of old gunpowder, who had now got over his fright and waywardness. Ichabod, who had no relish for this strange midnight companion, and bethought himself of the adventure of Brom Bones and the galloping horseman, now quickened his steed in hopes of leaving him behind. The stranger, however, quickened his horse to an equal pace. Ichabod pulled up and fell into a walk, thinking to lag behind. The other did the same. His heart began to sink within him. He endeavored to resume his psalm tune, but his parched tongue clove to the roof of his mouth, and he could not utter a staff. There was something in the moody and dogged silence of this pertinacious companion that was mysterious and appalling. It was soon fearfully accounted for, on mounting a rising ground which brought the figure of his fellow traveler in relief against the sky, gigantic in height and muffled in a cloak, Ichabod was horror-struck on perceiving that he was headless. But his horror was still more increased on observing that the head, which should have rested on his shoulders, was carried before him on the pommel of his saddle. His terror rose to desperation. He rained a shower of kicks and blows upon gunpowder, hoping by a sudden movement to give his companion the slip, but the specter started full jump with him. 
Away then they dashed through the thick and thin, stones flying and sparks flashing at every bound. Ichabod's flimsy garments fluttered in the air as he stretched his long, lank body over the horse's head in the eagerness of his flight. They had now reached the road which turns off to Sleepy Hollow, but Gunpowder, who seemed possessed with a demon, instead of keeping up it, made an opposite turn and plunged headlong downhill to the left. This road leads through a sandy hollow shaded by trees for about a quarter of a mile, where it crosses the bridge famous in Goblin Story, and just beyond swells the green knoll on which stands the whitewashed church. As yet the panic of the steed had given his unskillful rider an advantage in the chase, but just as he had got away through the hollow, the girths of the saddle gave way, and he felt it slipping from under him. He seized it by the pommel and endeavored to hold it firm, but in vain, and had just time to save himself by clasping old gunpowder round the neck when the saddle fell to the earth and he heard it trampled underfoot by his pursuer. For a moment the terror of Hans van Ripper's wrath passed across his mind, for it was his Sunday saddle. But this was no time for petty fears. The goblin was hard on his haunches, and, unskillful rider that he was, he had much ado to maintain his seat, sometimes slipping on one side, sometimes on another, and sometimes jolted on the high ridge of his horse's backbone, with a violence that he verily feared would cleave him asunder. An opening in the trees now cheered him with the hopes that the church bridge was at hand. The wavering reflection of a silver star in the bosom of the old brook told him that he was not mistaken. He saw the walls of the church dimly glaring under the trees beyond. He recollected the place where Brom Bones's ghostly competitor had disappeared. If I can but reach that bridge, thought Ichabod, I am safe. Just then he heard the black steed panting and blowing close behind him. He even fancied that he felt his hot breath. Another convulsive kick in the ribs, and old gunpowder sprang upon the bridge. He thundered over the resounding planks. He gained the opposite side, and now Ichabod cast a look behind to see if his pursuer should vanish, according to rule in a flash of fire and brimstone. Just then he saw the goblin rising in his stirrups, and in the very act of hurling his head at him. Ichabod endeavored to dodge the horrible missile, but was too late. It encountered his cranium with a tremendous crash. He was tumbled headlong into the dust, and Gunpowder, the black steed, and the goblin rider passed by like a whirlwind. The next morning, the old horse was found without his saddle and with the bridle under his feet, soberly cropping the grass at his master's gate. Ichabod did not make his appearance at breakfast. Dinner hour came, but no Ichabod. The boys assembled at the schoolhouse and strolled idly about the banks of the brook, but no schoolmaster. Hans van Ripper now began to feel some uneasiness about the fate of poor Ichabod and his saddle. An inquiry was set on foot, and after diligent investigation they came upon his traces. In one part of the road leading to the church was found the saddle trampled in the dirt, the tracks of horses' hoofs deeply dented in the road and evidently at furious speed, were traced to the bridge, beyond which, on the bank of a broad part of the brook, where the waters ran deep and black, was found the hat of the unfortunate Ichabod, and close beside it, a shattered pumpkin. The brook was searched, but the body of the schoolmaster was not to be discovered. 
Hans van Ripper, as executor of his estate, examined the bundle which contained all his worldly effects. They consisted of two shirts and a half, two stocks for the neck, a pair of two worsted stockings, an old pair of corduroy small clothes, a rusty razor, a book of psalm tunes full of dog ears, and a broken pitch pipe. As to the books and furniture of the schoolhouse, they belonged to the community, excepting Cotton Mather's History of Witchcraft, a New England almanac, and a book of dreams and fortune-telling, in which last was a sheet of foolscap much scribbled and blotted, in several fruitless attempts to make a copy of verses in honor of the heiress of Van Tassel. These magic books and the poetic scrawl were forthwith consigned to the flames by Hans Van Ripper, who from that time forward determined to send his children no more to school, observing that he never knew any good came of this same reading and writing. Whatever money the schoolmaster possessed, he had received his quarter's pay but a day or two before. He must have had about his person at the time of his disappearance. The mysterious event caused much speculation at the church on the following Sunday. Knots of gazers and gossips were collected in the churchyard, at the bridge, and at the spot where the hat and pumpkin had been found. The stories of Brower, of Bones, and a whole budget of others were called to mind, and when they had diligently considered them all and compared them with the symptoms of the present case, they shook their heads and came to the conclusion that Ichabod had been carried off by the galloping Hessian. As he was a bachelor, and in nobody's debt, nobody troubled his head any more about him. The school was removed to a different quarter of the hollow, and another pedagogue reigned in his stead. It is true, an old farmer who had been down to New York on a visit several years after, and from whom this account of the ghostly adventure was received, brought home the intelligence that Ichabod Crane was still alive that he had left the neighborhood partly through fear of the goblin and Hans Van Ripper, and partly in mortification at having been suddenly dismissed by the heiress, that he had changed his quarters to a distant part of the country, had kept school and studied law at the same time, had been admitted to the bar, turned politician, electioneered, written for the newspapers, and finally been made a justice of the ten-pound court. Brombones, too, who shortly after his rival's disappearance, conducted the blooming Katrina in triumph to the altar, was observed to look exceedingly knowing whenever the story of Ichabod was related, and always burst into a hearty laugh at the mention of the pumpkin, which led some to suspect that he knew more about the matter than he chose to tell. The old country wives, however, who are the best judges of these matters, maintain to this day that Ichabod was spirited away by supernatural means and it is a favorite story often told about the neighborhood round the winter evening fire. The bridge became, more than ever, an object of superstitious awe. And that may be the reason why the road has been altered of late years, so as to approach the church by the border of the mill pond. The schoolhouse, being deserted, soon fell to decay, and was reported to be haunted by the ghost of the unfortunate pedagogue and the plowboy, loitering homeward of a still summer evening, has often fancied his voice at a distance, chanting a melancholy psalm tune among the tranquil solitudes of Sleepy Hollow. Postscript, found in the handwriting of Mr. Knickerbocker. 
The preceding tale is given almost in the precise words in which I heard it related at a corporation meeting at the ancient city of Manhattos, at which were present many of its sagest and most illustrious burghers. The narrator was a pleasant, shabby, gentlemanly old fellow in pepper-and-salt clothes, with a sadly humorous face, and one whom I strongly suspected of being poor. He made such efforts to be entertaining. When his story was concluded, there was much laughter and approbation, particularly from two or three deputy aldermen, who had been asleep the greater part of the time. There was, however, one tall, dry-looking old gentleman, with beetling eyebrows, who maintained a grave and rather severe face throughout, now and then folding his arms, inclining his head, and looking down upon the floor, as if turning a doubt over in his mind. He was one of your wary men, who never laugh but upon good grounds, when they have reason and law on their side. When the mirth of the rest of the company had subsided and silence was restored, he leaned one arm on the elbow of his chair and, sticking the other akimbo, demanded, with a slight but exceedingly sage motion of the head and contradiction of the brow, what was the moral of the story and what it went to prove. The storyteller, who was just putting a glass of wine to his lips as a refreshment after his toils, paused for a moment looked at his inquirer with an air of infinite deference, and, lowering the glass slowly to the table, observed that the story was intended most logically to prove that there is no situation in life but has its advantages and pleasures, provided we will but take a joke as we find it. That therefore he that runs races with goblin troopers is likely to have rough riding of it, Ergo, for a country schoolmaster to be refused the hand of a Dutch heiress is a certain step to high preferment in the state. The old gentleman knit his eyebrows tenfold, closer after this explanation, being sorely puzzled by the ratiocination of the syllogism, while, methought, the one in pepper and salt eyed him with something of a triumphant leer. At length, he observed that all this was very well, but still he thought the story a little on the extravagant. There were one or two points on which he had his doubts. Faith, replied the storyteller, as to the matter, I don't believe one half of it myself. The Vampire by Madison Julius Cowain A lily in a twilight place, a moonflower in the lonely night. Strange beauty of a woman's face, of wildflower white. The rain that hangs a star's green ray, slim on a leaf point's restlessness. Is not so glimmering green and gray as was her dress. I drew her dark hair from her eyes, and in their deeps beheld a while such shadowy moonlight as the skies of hell may smile. She held her mouth up redly wan, and burning cold I bent and kissed. Such rosy snow as some wild dawn makes of a mist. 
God shall not take from me that hour when round my neck her white arms clung, when neath my lips, like some fierce flower, her white throat swung. Or words she murmured while she leaned, which words she holds me softly by, that spell that binds me to a fiend until I die. Winter's End by C.J. Kilmer Drive south on U.S. 1, that pre-I-95 East Coast master road from wherever you're fleeing. New York, New Jersey, Ohio, even Canada, maybe. Down Florida's Atlantic coast, and make a left at the light for a mid-sized road named Oceanic. You'll find it if you pay attention. It's somewhere south of Jacksonville, but north of Palm Beach. You've got to be careful, though, because it's not on many maps, and it's not as well marked as a St. Augustine or a Daytona Beach. Once you've found it, head east on Oceanic, just a few miles toward the coast, toward a raw, bayless Atlantic, a shoreline land of scraggly grass, stunted and storm-gnarled old oaks, and pines standing like lost causes, mingled with slouching palms and crouching palmettos, which finally taper out to sea oats, sand, and water. Follow the sound of the breakers and head into that stiff onshore wind, even as it strengthens, for that just means you're getting closer to the water. Cross the intercoastal waterway on the little drawbridge, assuming you've hit it when it's down. Otherwise, wait in your car, windows down, or, if you're really lucky and are in a convertible, top down. Smell the salt marsh. Feel the unfiltered warmth of the sun. It's dry this time of year, not the hot, sticky humidity that sucks out one's life, the climate that the people who actually live in this little burg have to deal with nearly two-thirds of the year, the kind that makes you sweat no matter how lightly you dress, no matter how assiduously you avoid the blazing sun for the refuge of the shade. You're lucky. You don't have to be here when it's like that. You've hit the good part. And you'll get out before it gets uncomfortable, before it stops being what you wanted it to be in your mind, before it stops living up to the travel brochure fantasy. Now, make landfall on the far side of the bridge, on the narrow strip of land between the intercoastal and the ocean, and you're in the town of Winter's End. Congratulations. Hope you like it here. It's one of the few towns on Florida's east coast that haven't been crushed and refashioned into either an anonymous sea of suburbs or generic range of condo and hotel edifices. It's one of the few that still has a little bit of personality, one of the few whose residents were mostly born in Florida, one of the few that hasn't had its rickety little cracker-style restaurants either driven out of business or touristed up. It's one of the few where New York accents are rare as panthers, the median age is below 65, and most people fish and fish well. At least, that's what it's like when it's not tourist season. Once tourist season arrives, and obviously it has because, after all, you're here, things change. The town's permanent residents have a textbook love-hate relationship with your kind. 
The residents make it difficult, through manipulation of municipal laws and ordinances, for outsiders to settle permanently in winter's end, and even harder still for snowbirds to own property that they only occupy for a few months of the year. However, the invaders from the north do bring money, and some of them, though by no means all, want to spend it liberally. But even those less spendthrift souls do things to the town cause it harm, and then recede like a killer storm surge, leaving the permanent residents to deal with the consequences. A good place to start to get at the truth of the relationship between tourists and the town would be Melinda's Diner, just ahead on Oceanic, on the right-hand side of the road, the place that looks to be made out of chrome and neon and nothing else, a refugee from a simpler time, a restaurant with tail fins that looks like it's cruising somewhere even as it sits at the side of the road. It's an all-purpose old-style cafe with great meals, better desserts, and still better coffee. Melinda's is now run by the grandson of the original owner-operator, Melinda Coopersmith. Melinda herself is currently retired and spends her days paddling a kayak up and down the intercoastal, armed with a heavy-duty fly rod, following the tides and the redfish. The restaurant has successfully fended off encroachments from both fast-food franchises and chain restaurants because the old diner offers better food, atmosphere, and service at competitive prices. So pull in, get out of your car, and enter Melinda's. Hear the tinkling of the bell above the doorframe and the muted tones of the Wurlitzer playing old country and rock and roll. Admire the 50s posters and tin signs if you want. They're all authentic. And take in the classic furnishings, the Jetsons-like futurism of them, the omnipresent shine of polished chrome trim, like the entire interior is mimicking the exterior of a mid-50s Chevy or Chrysler. As you check things out, make sure to smile and nod at the waitress behind the counter, the pretty young blonde with the perfect tan, as she gives you a friendly greeting wholly unbefitting your interloper status. But don't take the proffered seat at the counter. Instead, turn right and head towards that booth against the wall, the one occupied by the slightly overweight man with graying red hair who's wearing jeans and cowboy boots. His name is Wade McCluskey, and he's both town sheriff and mayor. Introduce yourself, shake his hand, and ask if you can sit and talk with him. He won't say no. He's probably the most courteous individual left in the entire Sunshine State. Ask him about Winter's End, how it's doing. How things have and have not changed. What the relationship is between the tourists and the town. Things ain't that bad, but they used to be better, he'll no doubt tell you. His voice is the old Florida draw, similar to a Georgia one, yet with an aftertaste all its own, an accent that is rapidly fading into oblivion in all but a few forgotten locales. His dialect is made even more distinctive because of the obvious education lurking beneath the good old boy intonations. You know, the town was originally begun with the intent to turn it into another Yankee winter colony, hence the name Winter's End. But a group of folks that moved here from Tallahassee, Ocala, Palatka, Jacksonville, places like that, real Florida towns, not tourist ones, and they took control of local politics and worked to, let's just say, to keep what's happened to most coastal towns in Florida from happening to winter's end. Don't say anything. Just look at him expectantly. 
Sheriff slash Mayor McCluskey will continue. He'll probably lean forward now, and his eyes might dart around a little, just to check to make sure no one in Melinda's is eavesdropping before proceeding. But we've got a different problem here, he says. He seems reluctant to elaborate, but you gently press him, making him feel like his information is the most interesting thing in the world to you, and he's completely seduced by it. His face turns deadly serious and even more conspiratorial. The tourists that come here are... different. They suck the lifeblood out of the town even as they pump money into it, and I really mean that. You tell him you don't think he's serious. You follow up by asking him why he'd tell you any of this anyway, since you're an outsider too. Yeah, you're not from around here. I knew that right off the bat. He leans back a little, takes a deep breath, then leans forward again. You're an outsider, but you're not the typical Winter's End tourist either. You pause, waiting for him to elaborate. But then the young blonde waitress saunters over. Making a new friend, Wade, she says. Something like that, McCluskey answers with a dazzling ivory smile. You see how he got himself elected to two town offices with a smile like that. He looks from the waitress to you. Whatever you want's on me. So you order a sandwich. Turkey BLT on toasted sourdough, along with a glass of ice water and, at McCluskey's insistence, a cup of Melinda's coffee. The waitress smiles and winks at you and McCluskey before she turns and heads back into the kitchen. Anyway, the sheriff says, refocusing on you, where was I? You ask him how he knows you're not a typical Winter's End tourist, and what such a thing would be anyway. Oh, right. It's real simple. I know you're not one of them, because you're out here, sitting in front of me right now. The look on his face says that somehow he expects you to know what the hell that means. You tell him you don't understand. You wouldn't believe me. You'd think I was crazy, if I just explained it to you straight up all logically. Your beverages arrive. McCluskey nods at the waitress, and she smiles and leaves. You down half the ice water in an interconnected set of gulps, then begin mixing sweetener into the coffee. Taking a sip, you realize it's the best damn cup of joe you've had in a very long time. You want the short version? McCluskey asks. You nod, continuing to sip your coffee. He speaks the next sentence staccato, each word clipped and over-enunciated. I know you are not one of them, because you are out and it is still daylight. The incredulous look on your face must say it all. McCluskey slaps the table, lightly, but clearly frustrated. See, I knew you'd think I was crazy as soon as I started telling you the real truth. He looks out the window, angry but also seemingly embarrassed, unwilling to make eye contact with you for now. You ask him if he means that most of the Winter's End tourists are vampires. You try to make your voice sound serious, and it seems to work, because McCluskey turns away from the window, softens his expression, and refocuses his eyes back on yours. Maybe they are, he says. You know what? I don't care what you think. Here it is, plain and simple. Winter's End has become a mecca for northern vampires. Especially northern senior citizen vampires. He sips his own coffee. You don't look like you believe me, not one bit. But that's what I expected. 
You tell him that yes, you're a bit dubious, but at the same time, you're quite intrigued. Really? Intrigued? he asks. Not absolutely certain that this town's sheriff and mayor is totally crazy? Not ready to thank me for the coffee and get the hell out of here ASAP and, and head back on up the road to a less insane town? Like St. Augustine, maybe? You shake your head and tell him no, you honestly are intrigued. You tell him you're open-minded about stuff like this. You just never expected to encounter it in, of all places, coastal Florida. Well, it didn't used to be like this, he says. Like when I was a kid. Vampires used to stay mostly in places up north, especially places that weren't sunny. Of course, when I was a kid, I didn't know vampires were real. But then, I doubt there were very many, maybe not even any at all, around here back then. Then things changed. They started trickling in a little in the 70s. I remember my first time finding a crime scene victim from one. I didn't know what the hell to think. Then, nothing. Until exactly the same time next year. Tourist season again. Another Vic, same M.O. And then it picked up, along with the economy, in the 80s, and it's been growing steadily ever since. He leans forward again, grinning. You want to live dangerously? You ask him what exactly he means by that. I can show you our tourists in action if you want. Wouldn't that be dangerous, you ask? In theory, McCluskey says, but they don't get too many local folks anymore because local folks are wise to them. Usually, as long as you stay indoors, and that includes inside a patio or a porch or a car, because vampires have to be invited in, remember, you're all right. So if you want, we can take a spin around in my cruiser this evening, and I'll show you what I mean. You tell him you'll take him up on his offer. You'll see it'll be fun, he says. Why don't you book a room at Richard Johnston's? Used to be a Howard Johnson's, back in the day. Still has the orange roof and all. Locally run and owned, nice place. A lot better than that damn day's in they put up down the road. You say yes. He gives you directions to Richard Johnston's, and tells you he'll pick you up a little bit after six, by which time it should be just past dusk. Then he rises to leave, excusing himself, and says, Sally, that's the waitress, she knows to put your stuff on my tab, so eat up, get a slice of pie if you want. It's all on me. I've got some things to take care of between now and evening. Pleasure talking to you. He shakes your hand before leaving. He nods to Sally on the way out. Sally then sashays over and asks if you want anything else. You order a slice of pie. Key lime. It comes, and it's really good, the best you've ever tasted. After eating it, along with drinking another cup of that coffee, you attempt to do your best swagger out past Sally. She rewards you with a smile, another wink, and a see ya. You exit Melinda's, hop in your car, and follow McCluskey's directions to Richard Johnston's. There it is, sitting proudly, but perhaps a little unsure of its surroundings. A pristine condition, 1950s vintage hojos, orange roof and all. The name on the sign has been changed to read Richard Johnston's, but that's the only alteration you can readily spot. You check in. The long-haired surfer dude behind the counter seems friendly enough, if not quite the brightest bulb in the hardware department. But you're soon in your own room, laying on a surprisingly comfortable bed, listening to the hum of the AC wall unit, and watching ancient episodes of the original Kolchak the Night Stalker series on a reruns channel. 
You get lost in television world and are surprised, maybe even mildly jolted, when you hear a hard knock on your door. But within a second, you quickly realize it's McCluskey, and then you get excited that you might actually see something truly weird tonight. When you open the door, the sheriff is standing there, all smiles and charm. Still on for tonight, he says, in the conspiratorial manner of a high school chum who's come to bring you to a secret kegger. You tell him, of course, you're still game, and follow him out to his police sedan. He opens the passenger door for you and closes it on you once you're in, like you're his date. Then he walks around, settles himself in next to you, and pulls his own door shut. We're going downtown, he says with a huge, sharky smile. At your questioning look, he adds, We do have a downtown here, believe it or not. He begins a series of turns down ever smaller streets. So where are you from, he asks. You tell him, and he's not surprised. A lot of them from up there, too, he says. You tell him you've never run into a vampire before, even back up north. I guess maybe they're a little more secretive up there, but then down here, since they're on vacation, they just kind of cut loose. He chuckles at his own statement. Looking out the window, you realize you've arrived downtown. And it's actually pretty neat. Like a whole Main Street district to match the interior of Melinda's. Everything old-fashioned, but not old-looking. It's clear that all these mom-and-pop businesses, a barber shop, a druggist, a bookstore, a tackle shop, are not abandoned, and are, on the contrary, doing excellent business. And you notice that they're all still open, even at 7 p.m., in near-full dark. There are street lights lining the road, and though they're on, they seem dimmer than they should be, but that doesn't seem to be bothering all the shoppers. Downtown Winter's End is absolutely booming. Dozens and dozens of people in all stages of elderliness are milling about the streets. These are them, McCluskey says. You ask him if he means these are vampires. Yep, every goddamn one of them. Look close at the teeth. You do as he says and can't help but be amazed that, yes, all of the people walking the streets seem to have enlarged canine teeth protruding from their mouths, even when closed. You also realize that the vampire tourists are not harming the locals who are running the businesses. You mention this to McCluskey. You're very observant, he replies. Yep, they don't hurt the local business people. Do you want to know why? He doesn't give you time to respond before he continues. Because I've made a pact with them. They don't settle here permanently. They patronize local businesses. And they don't feed on local people anymore. You ask him what he gives them in return. People like you, he says, and reignites that million-dollar great white smile of his. You realize that somehow he's drawn his sidearm and pointed it at you faster than your eyes could have followed. It's a big, brawny-looking revolver, definitely not standard police issue. Probably a forty-four Magnum or maybe something even more potent. Get out of the car, he says. Now. You hesitate. Getting shot to pieces by a hand cannon doesn't really appeal to you, but then again, neither does getting tossed out of the safety of a vehicle into the clutches of dozens of apparent vampires. You try to reason with them. It doesn't work. You try to bargain with him, but that doesn't work either. After listening to several minutes of your pleading, McCluskey finally pistol whips you. You almost see it coming, but not quite. It hurts a lot. It's a heavy gun. 
He does it again, and the pain actually recedes a bit as you teeter on the edge of unconsciousness. Regrettably, you don't quite topple over into a full blackout. As you sit there, stunned, he leans across you and flicks open the passenger side door. With shocking strength, he shoves you out, and you land hard on the curb. Then you watch McCluskey shut the cruiser's door, and the vehicle ease away, ever so slowly, with McCluskey inside waving to you, that damn smile on his face again. An old blue-haired lady strides toward you as you sober up from the bludgeoning. Hi there, she says, her New York accent so thick you can almost see it. Hey, uh, how's it going, eh? Says a white-haired old gent dressed in a Packers windbreaker, his voice dripping of the upper Midwest. You scoot backwards, your ass dragging across the blacktop, but your head's still fucked up enough that it's impossible for you to just jump up and bolt. But it doesn't matter, because these old Yankee vampires, once they smell you and realize you're fair game, they come in quick, like sharks to a gut-filled chum bag. They circle you, surround you, Finally, a bald guy in a golf shirt, his pants pulled up almost to his armpits, feels bold enough to launch in on you. The attack is so quick that you barely have time to flinch before he's upon you. You struggle with all your youth and vigor, but it's obvious to you immediately that this old vampire is strong all out of proportion to his appearance. You feel a wasp sting sensation at your jugular. Then the world starts drifting away, but you're overcome with a euphoric sensation, and you just let it slip. The last image your eyes take in before you exit the world of the living is a dozen senior citizens, fangs protruding out of their mouths, rushing in at you. Our kids have said to us since we've moved to Minnesota, we are far more active than we've ever been anywhere else we've ever lived. Moving to Minnesota opened up a lot of doors for us. Just this overall sense of community, of the values that, you know, Minnesotans have. It's a real accepting, loving community, especially with two young kids. See why CNBC ranks Minnesota number four best state to live and work. A great place to work, an even better place to live. ExploreMinnesota.com slash live.